Well, hello, everyone. This is Caitlin. And this is Jessica. And this is Calling All Spirits. How are you doing in this post-Halloween world? I am doing okay. I was a little sad. But then I'm like, wait, we get to live in this creepy world all year long. It's not like it ends because of Halloween. (laughs) Right? I had the same kind of impulse and I was bugging in my brain a little bit because I also love Christmas and the rest of the holiday season. Like everything from Halloween through the beginning of January brings me joy. And like the solstice is my absolute favorite part of the entire year. But I was thinking about it. I'm like, why do I feel so much more extra about decorating for Yule and the solstice versus how I decorate for Halloween. And I like literally had that moment that you see in the Facebook memes of like Kermit mm-hmm. and then Kermit in the cloak. And it was like Kermit in yeah. the cloak was like, because your Halloween decorations don't get put out for the holiday. <laughs> I have to go get my nutcrackers from the attic in order to decorate for Christmas. For Halloween, my house is just ready. That's why I don't feel yes. as extra. <laughs> I know. I even put out a few extra decorations this year. Uh, but yeah, I was a little bummed. But I'm like you. I mean, I'm obsessed with Christmas. So now I'm over it and I'm already ready to set up like my, all five of my trees. Because I'm I'm crazy. I'm one of those crazy people that has like a tree for each room. You are but, definitely um, extra when it comes to all of the holidays, honestly. <laughs> well, Halloween, not as much. Only... Since I decorate a 7,000 square foot house at Halloween every year, by the time it gets to my house, I did like the bare minimum. We have decorations. I'm like, I am done. Like, this is, this is as good as it's going to get. This is true. And not going to lie, I have, uh, I have shifted into overdrive because when I still lived in Houston, I didn't decorate my house nearly as intensely because I had that lovely Victorian mansion to decorate every Christmas. And then when we left and I moved to Austin, I'm like, ooh, I'm going to decorate the whole house. And like, I've done the whole intricate, like, wintry houses that light up. And I've been extra AF. I don't know how it's going to work in this new house, (laughs) but I am very excited to see what I can do. (laughs) I know. I love it. I was, I I agree 100%. I was thinking about the Halloween decorations I have to put up. I'm like, wait, most of these will just go back in my office or go like in other parts of the house. They don't really get put away after Halloween is over. They just kind of get put back like last year for the trick-or-treaters I think I emptied my entire cabinet of curiosities and I put it on the front porch (laughs) with me but then I just put it back in my cabinet so that I could enjoy it in my (laughs) office like it's not like it got put away the same way the nutcrackers Mm -hmm. and the holiday wreaths and everything else get put away like those definitely get put away my Halloween decor just moved back into its normal spot in the house no exactly I've got to I got a new piece that I'm so excited about, but I've got to figure out where I'm going to put it on my shelves. But thanks to my mom, who happened to go into a Hallmark store, I got the Haunted Mansion from Hallmark. That's like, it's supposed to be a tree topper, but it'll just sit in my office. And what? it lights up, and it talks, and it plays music. What? I paid way too much for it. I'm ashamed to almost say how much I paid for it, but <laughs> I am like, I must own this. And ever since I saw it, I was like, this this has to be mine. That is so cool. I can't wait for you to see it. It was sold out everywhere. And she just happened to be, um, she was out of town and walked in a Hallmark store and she said it was just sitting there. So like she grabbed it and they were like, that's the last one. So she oh. texted me and she's like, call me. It's an emergency. I'm like, what? So I think like somebody's died and she's like, I have the last Hallmark Haunted Mansion. Do you want it? <laughs> Yes, I do, actually. <laughs> but 
but I'm like, also never do that to me again. I thought somebody had died. Well, how was your, did Halloween go well, at least? Halloween was interesting. So our new neighborhood is not a trick-or-treater friendly neighborhood, like mm. literally in its infrastructure. We don't have sidewalks. We only have a handful of streetlights and it's not really conducive to safely trick-or-treating. So downtown, right. which is like four blocks away, has a whole bunch of stuff going on in the parks nearby. And the neighborhood we used to live in is where everyone would go trick-or-treat, which is why that neighborhood was bumping every year. Right. So we actually got no trick-or-treaters at all. No! Which was Aww. weird for me. I haven't, like, yes. I haven't dealt with that ever, honestly, in my life. Even in the house in Katie, when I didn't have time to be the one handing out candy, we still got a handful of trick-or-treaters. And so right. it it was definitely different. Um, and I will keep better track of the events downtown so that I can participate in those on Halloween. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because, like, I, I went to work, I came home, and then I just kind of figured I'd veg on the front porch like I always do. Yeah, and that, that didn't work. Of but course. Oh, I'm sorry. We experienced it. I know exactly what to expect now. And, yeah, no, it was just kind of one of those, like, oh, that's a, that's a bummer. The absolutely ridiculous amount of candy that my husband bought did not go to waste. Because we have sugar fiends living in the house now. <laughs> And so a couple of the roommates got all of the candy, and they were very happy that none of the trick-or-treaters showed up. <laughs> well, that's good. That's that's good. Aw. Yeah, just re figure it out for next year. Yeah. Just have a different game plan I got to develop now. It's, yeah. it's part of living in a new place. That kind of stuff happens. It is. Absolutely. What about you? How was your Halloween? Um, it was good. We kind of have one of those neighborhoods, too, that, like, we don't really get a bunch of kids. So we packed up and we went to some of our really good friends. Their neighborhood is like your old one where it's like everybody is out. So every year for the past couple, we've been like, can we just come to your house and trick or treat? Yeah. And they're so sweet to invite us. And so, yeah, we just did that and hung out with them. Um, but it was fun. And oh, I do have one little ghostly thing, though, that did remind me. Hmm. Maybe it was a ghost that like pushed me off my chair to like remember to tell her this story. But um, we did, okay, we do ghost tours every year at the museum I used to work at, and now I basically still work there, but I volunteer. We had gone through the ghost tours, and um, we had had some interesting stuff, um, but it was so crazy because we had this one piece that, I don't know if it just hadn't worked the whole time, and it, it's like a Frankenstein switch where it makes like all the electrical sounds and oh, all that. Cool. Yeah, and but the only way we could get it to work was you had to physically, like, do it or touch it. Like, even the sensor, we'd rub our hand all in front of it and around it, nothing. It was like, okay, finally, you had to basically hit it or move it, and it would go off. Well, we were doing tours during the day for the little kids, for and we, they were just walking through the kitchen. They've been coming through for the past oh, two hours. And then at the very end, um, the site director, who you know, she started to walk in the door. That thing just started going off all by itself. <laughs> and I'm and she goes, is that on a sensor? And I'm like, I don't know. So I'm like, so once it stopped, I went over there. We did our hands in front of it. We stood in front of it. We moved in front of it. Nothing. And it wouldn't do it again. And we're like, maybe that was a weird thing. So that night at the ghost tours, I was telling them, okay, we had this weird thing happen. Mm -hmm. I wasn't even standing near it. And as soon as I started to tell the story, that thing went off again. And I'm like, well, there you go. Oh, like, just do your thing. Oh, nice. And they were convinced. They're like, it's a sensor. So I'm like, no, look. And I'm like trying to show them. They're like, 
so how does it go off? I'm like, I don't know. We but don't yeah, know. Just, <laughs> no, just when the ghosts decide, which, I mean, honestly, it would have been helpful earlier in the month, so I didn't have to keep flipping it on, but right? yeah, they just decided at the very end, like, oh, we'll do this, so I don't know. But um, but yeah, so we even had a little ghostly thing at the Halloween party. Oh, that's fantastic. I love it. Well, and speaking of ghostly things, that ties kind of perfectly into our topic tonight. That it does. <laughs> and I am excited because not only it's something we've been wanting to cover, but it ties in so perfectly to things we've talked about recently and upcoming episodes as well. Like it's all connected like we planned this or something. <laughs> it's almost like we knew going into this that a lot of the people and the organizations and the places were all going to connect with each other because they were all happening at the same time. Exactly. No, I loved it. I started recognizing some names and things. I was like, oh my gosh, we know these people. I am ready to dive in. Are you ready to talk about the London Ghost Club? I am so ready for this. Woohoo! Now, for an overview, if people don't know, the Ghost Club has been a gathering place for remarkable and sometimes famous people that were interested in discussing the strange and supernatural for over 160 years. It is the world's oldest society dedicated to paranormal research. And since its inception in 1862, the Ghost Club attracted scholars, scientists, military leaders, politicians, thinkers, and several writers who enjoyed debating the supernatural. And these men would dine and drink while conversing with their fellow members or ghost brothers about the afterlife. Now, over the years, it went through many different versions from a really scientific-minded approach to a more trusting, some say gullible, organization. (laughs) But nevertheless, their goal has remained the same to conduct research into the paranormal with a prime interest in ghosts and hauntings. One author even described the Ghost Club as not an organization prone to blind faith, but one that functioned at times like a refined type of Mythbusters, which I thought was kind of fabulous. (laughs) That's a fantastic description. I love it. It is, though I will argue with that author. I think there are times there was just a little bit of only blind faith, but we're going to get into that. Yeah, some credulity uh, would not be, uh, <laughs> or some incredulity would not be amiss. Exactly. Now, of course, as always, we have to start with the birth of modern spiritualism at the farmhouse of the Fox Sisters in March 1848. I feel like it's like the seven, was it the seven degrees of Kevin Bacon? Or yeah, the five like, degrees of Kevin Bacon, ties, everything yes. ties back to the Fox Sisters in height. Yes. It, oh my God. And every time, I don't know if y'all understand this. Uh, unless you, of course, also research this yourselves. But anytime you get into a podcast or an audiobook or an article or anything, even when I was looking into Houdini, every single article started with an introduction to the modern movement of spiritualism. I think I reread the story of the Fox Sisters like 40 times in that one episode. And I know it's yes. going to come up in the book that I'm about ready to start reading for the next episode. It's in case anyone forgot about the three sisters. <laughs> The two mediums and their manager sister. Like, obviously, y'all can go back and listen to our episode and listen to our opinions on the topic. But, like, also, Google spiritualism and any topic at all. And within, honestly, two or three degrees, you can't get away from the Fox sisters at all. No. And this author 
who who wrote a brilliant book about the um the club. Oh my gosh, it was like three or four paragraphs all about the Fox sisters and who were they and it, which is good. She needs to start there, but for us, it's like yes, we know we know about the Fox sisters. It's kind of um, like when you're binging a TV show on like Netflix or Paramount or something, and they're like previously on. Why are y'all acting like we didn't just finish this episode? <laughs> Cut the previously on, please. I don't need it. It was 30 seconds ago. <laughs> yes, exactly. And before I forget or go any further, when I the book I read was called The Ghost Club, and it was by Kate Winkler Dawson. And actually, I could only find it in the Audible version. There may be a paperback version, but it's a great book on this if anybody wants to dive a little deeper. But yes. And like all, it starts with the Fox sisters. So tell us, Jess, who were the Fox sisters? (laughs) Just kidding. No, we're not going to do that. (laughs) Go back and listen. We did a two-part episode on the Fox sisters. (laughs) And as we know, the movement steadily spread, but it exploded with the onset of the Civil War. And eventually it crossed the Atlantic and reached the shores of England. And this would inspire the creation of the Ghost Club. Now, we have to go back a little bit because our story really begins at Cambridge University in the 1850s. Um, And with this arrival of spiritualism, discussions of the afterlife were becoming more popular, particularly actually among men of faith. Um, And it was Reverend B.F. Westcott, who later became Bishop Durham, who invited esteemed academics and clergymen to engage in these spirited debates about what happens after you die. Now, their group became known first as the Ghost Society and was the predecessor to the future Ghost Club, and members included a soon-to-be Bishop of Canterbury, a future Prime Minister of England, Lords, and more. So, I mean, these are very, this is like the upper echelon that are a part of this. Um, It is believed that the Ghost Society didn't conduct investigations into the paranormal, But sadly, due to a lack of documentation, we don't really know much of the details of this meeting, of their meetings. Mm, Bummer. I know. I know. And that's also why we don't know why it ended. But at some point, the society just kind of simply vanished. Hmm. But it wouldn't be gone forever. In 1862, a new version of the Ghost Society was formed and founded in London, England, and then it was called the Ghost Club. Many members of the original society joined the new organization, including a former founder, B.F. Westcott, and it was described by Peter Underwood as a somewhat curious, exclusive, and singular organization consisting of highly intelligent and highly clubbable men. So basically, I'm sorry, clubbable men? I, I had to look this up. I had to look because I was like, wait, what? Uh, but it's like the upper crust of society, like the ones that would be invited to clubs and to be part of different organizations. But I had to Google. I had to look that <laughs> word up. That was a new one to me. That is not the description that comes to mind when I think of someone as clubbable. I know. It makes me think of like the Flintstones and like clubbing someone over the head. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I, because I'm like, what is, and at first I'm like, did he mean culpable? Like, what did he mean? And then I, I. You know, the dictionary is an amazing thing. And I'm like, what does this mean? And I was like, oh, okay, that's what it means. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I am here for the definition lookup. That is appreciated. I'm glad you <laughs> looked that up. And I'm disappointed now that they weren't walking around with clubs. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> I know. See, our minds think alike. I was like, 
What? Amongst them, and probably the most famous member of the time, was Charles Dickens. <gasps> we know all I about know. him. <laughs> we do. I was about to say, from as we know from a previous podcast, Charles Dickens' own beliefs about the afterlife were complicated. He viewed specters and spiritualism with suspicion. And, I mean, really, I mean, he kind of considered the religious movement a little absurd. He was also highly critical and skeptical of mediums and the evidence they provided. However, with all that being said, Dickens did claim to believe, or at least he said he wanted to believe in the supernatural, which kind of reminds me a little bit of Houdini. Yeah. In a sense, like he's saying, I want to believe. Um, and he even dabbled in the practice of mesmerism, which we know all about. <laughs> Absolutely. And he did believe in its powers to cure nervous disorders like hypochondria or hysteria. And Dickens said that he hoped to be persuaded that spirits were real during his lifetime and remained open-minded that one day someone would present him with credible evidence. Yeah. Um, but he wasn't going to just re- merely rely on, even if it was convincing, testimony of other people. I feel like he was kind of like, I have to see it to believe it. Again, like Houdini. Yeah, valid. And, I mean, Charles Dickens wasn't really alone in his beliefs. During the period, several members of the Ghost Club were pretty skeptical of spiritualism and feared that it could be a deceptive movement targeting the gullible. Um, And this is the period when I really feel like they're kind of like the Mythbusters. One of the central themes of the 1862 Ghost Club was this team of investigators who were proud of exposing frauds and hoaxes. And they viewed spirits and seances with skepticism. And Dickens really took the lead in debunking their deceitful methods. Oh, my gosh. He reminds me of Houdini even more. (laughs) Um, He felt that the evidence and messages from spirits were often vague and nonsensical. And what they were saying really couldn't be proven or disproven. And he also felt that their visions and symbols were really meaningless and probably just the result of their vivid imagination. So it was going to take a lot to convince him. Now, it's, oh, it's also said that the London Ghost Club even investigated the Davenport Brothers, mm-hmm. which, again, another podcast. We know all about them. But if you're new, they were two spiritualist siblings from America, and during their shows, they would be their hands and legs would be bound as they were in put inside a spirit cabinet and the doors were closed and locked and then mysterious ghostly things would begin happening now during one of their shows in london members of the ghost club actually attended because they wanted to debunk them mm-hmm. now as they were put into the spirit cabinet this beautiful classical music began to play And the Davenport brothers claimed that Bach was using them to play his music once again from the other side. However, the London Ghost Club members didn't believe it and declared the brothers to be frauds. It just so happened that some of those members were apparently Bach enthusiasts (laughs) and knew immediately that that wasn't his music being played. (laughs) So, it's said while the ruse may have worked in America, the Davenport brothers had selected the wrong audience in London. Yo, bad choices, boys. Like that, bad choices. Yeah, and I feel like that did happen to them. Quite a lot. <laughs> um, now, due to... But here's the thing, because 
And we're going to talk about this more. Due to the secrecy of the Ghost Club, they never published any of the results of their investigations. So That's incredibly unhelpful. Yeah, so they didn't really come out and say they're frauds, but amongst themselves, they were like, we got them. We figured out what they did. To what point in purpose then? Like, you're not debunking for the sake of society at that point. You're literally doing it so that you can ego stroke each other and say, we know better. Pretty much. And we're going to talk about the secrecy a little bit more. Um, Now, in 1870, Charles Dickens passed away, and it kind of appeared that the Ghost Club was destined to go with him because several members stopped attending meetings and the club gradually just faded away. But once again, it wouldn't be gone for long, and it was revived a decade later. But this time, things are going to be very different. Yeah, it's going to get interesting. So, on a chilly All Saints Day in November of 1882, the third and really the kind of the final version of the Ghost Club was inaugurated with 10 members in attendance. And I should say this. I mean, they had several members over the years, but most of the people coming to these meetings, it wasn't like 30 or 40 people. It was still, it was pretty small groups of people. Um, and this version of the club really has stood the test of time and it's been in existence for about 140 years. So the club was revived by Elric Alfred Watts and Reverend William Moses. And Watts was a British government clerk, a writer and a spiritualist. Mm. Moses was a medium, a religious teacher and one of the most prominent, prominent spiritualists of his time. Stephen said that he was skilled in automatic writing and other techniques of the day, Caitlin, including spirit photography. Oh, good. That makes you a credible representation of the movement. Well, it's. I'm glad you said that because interesting to note that when he was asked to submit to scientific testing to verify his skills, he refused. <gasps> Le gasp. So we're starting to see, unlike the 1862 club, The two new founders were true believers who did not question the validity of spiritualism. Mm. Both men were instrumental in the formation of other psychical organizations, and they were not merely observers. They were pretty active practitioners of spiritualism, and they sought out members who not only shared their beliefs, but were also their confidants. And this club was optimistic about the afterlife, and they believed in the existence of spirits and trusted the mediums who communicated with them. I mean, I don't blame you for believing, and I don't blame you for joining an organization that wants to encourage belief rather than take it apart. But the absolute lack of suspicion ever is in and of itself sus. Yeah, it feels like we've gone from one extreme kind of a little bit to the other. And that's what they talk about, how the pendulum really swung the other direction. I mean, Um, we already just have these examples. We went from Houdini to Doyle. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, that's perfect. Yes, this is what has happened. Now, the club's motto was adopted three months after the first meeting. And it was, of course, it was in Latin, but this is a translation. Be born, work, Die, be born. That was their motto. Um, I know. What? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Maybe it's like be born. I, okay. I think it was just be born as a spirit at death, but it's like. That, yes. 
it, yeah, I, that's it, the whole point of it. Like, you're not really dying. You're coming back. But yeah. It's very, I mean, it would have made more sense if they had said be born, work, be born or something mm. or die and be reborn or something. But uh, it. Yeah. It's very. I mean, granted, it probably flows better in Latin. Right. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure but it sounds so much It's better. very stilted and uninspiring. <laughs> I kind of thought so too. I was excited when I'm like, they had a motto, and then I was like, oh. <laughs> like, it was just like. I like my motto better. I don't always like my motto better, but the official rules around me are my motto, which is no tripping, no falling, no dying. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it started at the last job I was at with the museum out in the field and in the shop, and now it works really well for where I'm yeah. at. I love it's, it. It's the official rules wherever I am, whether it's my side or not. No tripping, no falling, no dying. <laughs> but if you do, I'll be back. We got you. <laughs> <laughs> we got you. Exactly. And so you can, I mean, we can see it's really changed. And really, one of the very few remaining practices of the old ghost club of 1862 was its high level of secrecy and confidentiality. And also its exclusion of lower class men and women. But we'll get to that. Um, But secrecy was extremely important. And as one author put it, which I really loved how they said this, the one rule of the ghost club was you didn't talk about the ghost club. (laughs) So very fight club-esque. I love it. (laughs) Well, and I think the reason, kind of the reason they give for this wasn't I mean, part of it was it's kind of fun to have a secret society you're a part of. Yeah. But two, a lot of the members were the upper echelons of society and they maybe held positions in, like we said, the military or in the government. And they didn't want people to be like, oh, they believe in ghosts or, you know, like think like, oh, they're kind of crazy or it kind of made it sound like that. They didn't want to have to worry about that. I mean, on one hand, that's valid. On the other hand, Queen Victoria was all up and about this life. So I know I can almost understand it like later on more so than right now when like, I mean, yeah, they're having seances at the White House. It's exactly not... like it's all of the really powerful people in the world are doing this, too. So worst yeah. case scenario, you come out and say you're doing the whole keeping up with the Joneses thing and trying to mimic those above you i don't know yeah no i i I totally understand what you're saying that that kind of struck me too like why are we being so secretive so it's like maybe it was also just like we're in a secret club that we're special and you don't know things that's probably some of it too uh probably a mixture of the two now the ghost club held meetings at various restaurants throughout london so they kind of would go from restaurant to restaurant it was known that they preferred like the fine dining Rather than just, like, your standard meal at, like... It, the book even said, like, your standard standard British fare. Like, they wanted French or they wanted Italian. They were very big on what they were eating at <laughs> these meetings and what they were drinking. Okay. They, I mean, hey, if it I gives us a record, it gives us a record. Hey, and I'm all for it. I mean, I love good food and all I mean, Also, so. no argument here. I really do. I like Italian food. I like French food. This could This could work. They were into ghosts, but they were also kind of foodies of their day. <laughs> like they, I mean, that fits nicely in a world I can work with. It's the, the secrecy is a bit much for me, but otherwise, <laughs> cheers. We're in. <laughs> exactly. Now, these meetings often featured various presentations and members sharing their own encounters of ghosts. 
And it said that one of the main purposes of the club was to provide a safe space for people to share their supernatural experiences without being judged. Because um, a lot of these were personal accounts from seances or members' personal visits from spirits. And so it's basically they would go around at these meetings and be like, I have a story. I have a story. This happened to me. I don't know why, but it maybe being the 90s kid, it kind of reminded me of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Like, yes! you know, my scary story. <laughs> That's what I kept thinking of. I was totally thinking the same thing. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's kind of what it sounded like. Um, so, like, for instance, one, on one occasion, Reverend Moses recounted a conversation that lasted from 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. with a deceased ghost club member in which they spoke about God and Jesus in length and detail. That's a long conversation. I want to know which deceased member it was, because I'm guessing it wasn't Dickens. Otherwise, he probably would have no. name dropped. They said the name, but it wasn't like anybody that was like, oh, you know. Oh, dang. Uh, at, least, at least it wasn't anybody I recognize. Forgive me if somebody's like, that is a famous person. I'm sorry. But I didn't, it wasn't like <laughs> Charles Dickens. Um, but it was just like 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. That's five hours <laughs> I don't I don't know if I can handle five hours of philosophical discussions of the afterlife with a living person. No, no, uh, -uh no. But these were the kind of stories they were sharing. Um, now, in 1882, the same year the Ghost Club was resurrected, a similar organization known as the Society for Psychical Research, or SPR, was established at Cambridge University. And while both focused on the supernatural, the organization's missions were very different mm -hmm. um yeah <laughs> members of the spr believed in spirits but their focus was to sincerely investigate mediums and spirit phenomena using rigorous scientific techniques and at their meetings they proudly listed the names of their distinguished members who specialized in psychical research so i mean they were it was just a lot more scientific a lot more structured a lot less um, well, that's so funny. My next line, my next thing I was talking about was unlike the secrecy that surrounded the Ghost Club, <laughs> the SPR actually published their findings in a respected public journal that actually still exists today. Um, and I was thinking, really, in some ways, they were a lot more similar to Charles Dickens' Ghost Club of 1862. Yeah. I mean, they were, at least in their thoughts. Now, you may be surprised to learn that Ghost Club founders A.A. A. Watts and William Moses were also members of the Society of Psychical Research. Um, and they really weren't alone. There were several people that were members of both organizations. However, Watts and Moses would eventually become disheartened with the SPR's more skeptical approach to spiritualism <laughs> rather than just blind faith in it go figure i know um now the ghost club continued to grow in numbers over the years um especially when founding members nominated their friends and friends of friends um but it still remained small and very exclusive now by 1889 fw percival became the president of the ghost club and the organization's collective belief in spiritualism deepened even further and that's because Percival was a close friend of Reverend Moses Ooh. and member of his personal spirit circle, along with fellow ghost brother, Dr. Spear. And so now you just have the president and these members. They are all in on spiritualism. Like they have no doubts for the most part <laughs> that this is all real. 
At the turn of the century, the Ghost Club underwent a change in its leadership with new officers and members joining the group. And as per tradition, even after the founders passed away, they were still considered members of the club in spirit and their seats at the dining table were left empty and their names were still called during roll call at every meeting. So you could be a member in life, but they also considered you a member even after you passed. How did they feel about your dues being uh, required <laughs> after you died? They, they didn't mention that. They didn't charge your estate know. or anything? We don't have records of that? Mm. I don't know. That is worth saying, too. The reason we know so much about the Ghost Club from 1882 into the 30s, it's because they finally started taking records and recording the minutes mm. of their meeting. And they're available today. But when they finally turned them over, I believe it was the British Library they gave it to They were sealed. It was basically, you can't open this for like 25 years. What? Why? Probably because these high-ranking officials and members were sharing very personal stories. Oh, I know. So basically, we all have to be dead and then you can open it. But that's why we do have so much detail during this part of its history is because that doesn't make sense. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. The new members continue to hold meetings where they shared their own ghostly experiences But now they also saw the submission of new evidence through letters from friends and family, including women. (gasps) Oh, no. I know. They weren't sharing their stories in person, but they still got to share their stories. That's still scandalous, and I will not stand for it. I mean, there's a lot of accounts of different stories, but this one was so creepy, I decided to share it. And it was submitted in 1905, and it came from a woman who had a terrifying experience in her own home. So apparently she had been sitting at her writing table during, and this was during the day. She left the room for a short period of time, and when she returned, everything was undisturbed except, and this is how she described it, a perfect rain of blood had descended upon her writing table The white paper showed thick spots of blood along with the inkstand, pen tray, and the front drawers, and their handles were all covered. And this woman also apparently found blood in other areas of her house, including running down a framed engraving on the wall and pulling along the bottom edge of a frame. So, yeah, just random blood raining down in her house. I mean, around the picture frames and stuff honestly makes almost more sense to me because if there's, you know, iron and it's rusting and mm-hmm. it's gotten like condensation, I can see the rust water looking like blood. Yeah. But where it would have come from to drop on her desk unless there was a leaky pipe above her writing station. But then you look up yeah. and you'd see the water stain. Well, yeah, so... exactly. Unless she saw it. But if it was rusty, it was like, that's where the blood... I don't know. That was a bizarre story. I was that like, is oh my gosh. super bizarre. Isn't that crazy? I had to share that one. Or she was just super creative and was like, here, let me send them this. <laughs> like, I mean. I could also see that too. But I don't know. They claimed it was a very true story. So we'll take them at their word. By World War One, the collective unrelenting faith in spiritualism and mediums was beginning to fade among Ghost Club members And in its place, once again, was growing skepticism similar to Dickens and the Club of 1862. And a lot of this was mainly due to the numerous reports of questionable practices during seances and the exposure of fraudulent mediums, psychics, and 
spirit photographers. So it was kind of starting to get out that, hey, maybe this they're not all on the up and up. By 1918, we have World War One, and the high death toll once again led to a rise in spiritualism, just like the Civil War. And we have all new phony psychics and mediums who were eager to take advantage of those grieving lost loved ones. So it was kind of the perfect time for the Ghost Club members to resume their investigations of mediums and seances. And they really hoped to unmask the frauds while, you know, discovering possibly really true practitioners who were authentic. In 1919, a year after the end, after the end of the war, the Ghost Club welcomed a new member of high status, a renowned writer who had already gained international recognition at this time as a playwright and an innovative poet and a vocal political activist for his home country, Ireland, William Butler Yeats. Hmm. I know. So on December 3rd, 1919, the illustrious poet joined the meetings of the Ghost Club. And during these meetings, participants would refer to him as Brother Yates, and he was always an enthusiastic and active participant. It's kind of cool. He had actually had a long-standing belief in spiritualism that went back to his college years in Ireland, so they weren't, like, having to convince him he was already in. And he also believed that his wife was a gifted medium. Hmm. And during the first few years of their relationship, they dabbled in automatic writing, and it said they would hold hundreds of sessions privately and with friends, and they generated so much material in these sessions, he eventually published a book called A Vision, based on his findings. And his poetry and writings also were influenced by his belief in the paranormal, especially during this time. So, hmm. kind of cool. Oh, we're about to get to someone we know, Kate. During the early 1920s, membership in the Ghost Club continued to increase, including the addition of another famous writer, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Hey, we know him. We know him and adore him. The creator of Sherlock Holmes became a member during this time. And at one of the meetings, he probably spoke about his wife's impressive abilities in automatic writing and expressed his concern about the growing attacks against spiritualism. Hmm. Which that's going to come up later in his life. Not long after... And so, but he is involved. So exciting. In 1926, the Ghost Club would venture into brand new territory and began inviting women to their meetings. <gasps> because they believed women were excellent sources of knowledge regarding spiritual phenomena, which I have to admit, I'm kind of shocked when I think about this because... Up until this point, most of the leading mediums had been women. Right? Like, that's the entire movement. Yeah. So now, finally, the Ghost Club is like, well, they, they're kind of good at this. So maybe we should invite them. <laughs> like, right? <laughs> just took them a while. At the Ghost Club meeting on July 7th, 1926, the members hosted their first ladies' night. The invitation list included several women of royal stature, including two ladies, a duchess, a countess, and a princess. And I'm sad to say I don't know which princess it doesn't say, but I'd be very <laughs> curious. I mean, we could probably guess just going back at the time. But now in 1927, the history of the Ghost Club would be forever changed when one of its most illustrious members joined the organization, Harry Price. So, ooh. And your cold talked, chill coming into the room. I mean, seriously, especially if you were Arthur Conan Doyle. We're yeah. going to talk about it. <laughs> I love how when it comes to him, we're like, oh. 
that. Yeah. I know. So who was this guy? So he was considered himself a serious researcher and had been garnering attention in the world of spiritualism by exposing numerous fraudulent mediums. And in 1922, as a member of the Society of Psychical Research, Price investigated spirit photographer and friend of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, William Hope, which we touched on in a previous podcast. Yep. Price publicly declared William Hope to be a fraud, and Doyle, that really upset Doyle, and he really lost respect for Price and questioned why he refused to see the kind and benevolent side of spiritualism and instead focused on the few frauds of the movement. And Doyle believed that Price should concentrate on the truly gifted and authentic mediums rather than the fake ones. Later in 1925, Price established the National Laboratory of Psychical Research in London and continued to investigate the claims of spirit phenomena and mediumship. Now, Harry Price had known about the Ghost Club for years, and it seemed inevitable, really, that he'd get an invitation to, just to come to one of the meetings. And in 1927, he was unanimously elected an official member, and really the trajectory of the club would forever shift after that. Harry Price began presenting the findings of his investigations at meetings of the Ghost Club, and unlike the investigators they had had in the past, he was actually a professional, and he had a knack for quickly uncovering the tricks used by the fraudsters, and this was probably because in his early life, he was kind of a performer and a magician, who does this sound like, which gave him an edge over other investigators. Very, He's kind of like the Houdini. I was going to say, Houdini, London. is that you? <laughs> yeah. This all sounds were, so familiar. Were you pretending to be Harry, Harry Houdini and Harry Price? I mean... Maybe it was maybe it was him in disguise. He was just going back and forth. He was so capable of hiding who he really was <laughs> under a disguise without dramatically revealing himself later. Exactly. And Harry Price was known to be pretty kind of full of himself, too, and how amazing he was. They're very similar. <laughs> very similar. There had never really been a scientific study presented this way to the Ghost Club, so this was really groundbreaking. And the members felt fortunate, like, hey, we have this genuine psychical scientist on our roster and it would lead more credibility to them so that was that was pretty exciting for them in the 1930s the president of the ghost club declared that change was coming to the organization and it was the beginning of a new era and while the club had been exclusively limited to men they would finally be open to women to join not just a ladies night they could actually join. Become full members and everything? They could become full members. Though it is worth noting, at least during this time, they only accepted one. So we are open, but we're going to take one. We're going to start with one. So, I Yeah, mean, that sounds about right. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Because I got excited. I'm like, how many did they take during this time? It's like one. They took one. So. Yeah. Yes. Um, but... And during this time, they also continued to embrace spiritualism, but they were still questioning it at the same time. And I love Harry Price assured the group, many of whom were believers, that he would only pursue phony mediums. And if a psychic skills proved to be authentic, then he or she would receive praise rather than his abuse. <laughs> I love how he completely lied with the truth because he gave the impression that he was there to support the movement by only ousting the frauds. But since he thought everyone was a fraud, he wasn't technically lying when he said he was yeah. only going to go after the fraudulent mediums. 
So I think about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle mm-hmm. was hurt by two Harrys. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. He needs to pick friends with different names. Yeah, I agree. Like Maybe a Franklin or a, a Robert. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, no more Harrys for friends. On November 2nd of 1936... Sadly, the six lone members attending the dinner decided that the Ghost Club was probably no longer a viable organization. And it became clear that membership had waned, and this was partly due to the secrecy of the Ghost Club, which makes it very challenging to attract new members if people don't really know about it. Exactly. So it kind of waned, it faded away, but as history repeats itself, it would not be gone for long. Because even after it closed its doors... In 1938, Ghost Club members had still been, like, visiting each other privately to share their stories. And Harry Price was really sad. So in March of 1938, he brought it back. And after Price became chairman of the Ghost Club in 1938, its membership swelled with both men and women. Mm. Yes, because time had clearly created this demand for it. Um, He even had to limit the size of the membership. And his fame and notoriety proved to be great advertising for the once again struggling or for the once struggling organization. And the Ghost Club never closed again. And for those wondering, because we talk about his fame and notoriety, Harry Price was really famous. I mean, he did a lot of famous investigations and notable investigations, but there were two that kind of landed in him on the map, and that was his investigation of Helen Duncan. <laughs> and the Borley Rectory. And for those asking why we're skipping over it, it's because we're about to do future podcast episodes. One coming up next on Miss Helen Duncan. Yes. So we are going to hear all about his famous investigations. But tonight we're just doing an overview of the Ghost Club. So, stay and we tuned. would absolutely be a waste if we tried to squeeze in the rectory oh my gosh. into this episode. That yes. would get its own whole episode for sure. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's considered like the most haunted house in England. Like it it deserves its own episode. So those will be coming. So stay tuned. We did not forget (laughs) about them. I promise. Um, Now, the Ghost Club today, it continues to hold meetings in London. Um, It's a nonprofit organization with a council made up of voluntary members. The meetings are open to all viewpoints, believers and skeptics alike. And they still have speakers that cover an array of subjects and views on the paranormal phenomena associated with ghosts and hauntings. And I love this. Members still investigate the paranormal. So they like they go to haunted houses or places of purported psychic activity. And they've even expanded their repertoire to include UFOs. <laughs> I know. And their investigations are considered to be very serious and they're not for entertainment purposes. Um, They hold overnight investigations throughout the year, which sounds so cool. But this was very important on their website. They do not perform clearing, like they don't clear spaces. They don't do exorcisms. And the use of Ouija boards is strictly prohibited. Huh. I know. They said it's mainly because the majority of the sites they will, they visit will not allow you to bring in a Ouija board. So they are that not That makes a little more Ouija sense, board. actually. Yeah. yeah, it does. But I thought that was an interesting note, like you cannot bring a Ouija board. Hmm. And now details of the investigations are sent via email to all members. And if there's a place that several members want to go to, I thought this was cool. They do a lottery system. 
So like if there's a place there everybody wants to go to, they'll they'll just be like, okay, we'll draw names and to give That's everybody so a chance cool. to go. And they are still super proud of their history and the many famous members over the years. So if people want to look into the Ghost Club, they have a website and I think their meetings are held. Don't quote me, but I think it's like on Saturday, once a month, Saturdays at like 2 p.m. So we're on the so, I mean, you can still go to the meetings if you're in the area. They they did say they don't have the fine dining and drinks like they used Aww, to. <laughs> or maybe there's day. drinks. Yeah. So it's more of like an afternoon meeting. But that is the London Ghost Club. Fascinating. So, yeah, and there were many other members. I know people are like, well, what about this person? There were there were a lot of famous members over the years. So I just picked out a couple of them to share and some of the more notable ones. I mean, especially like Dickens. That's a huge one. And I mean, realistically, as much as we appreciate y'all's patience for sitting through our very long <laughs> Houdini and Doyle episodes, we assumed <laughs> that y- y'all weren't wanting us to creep up and closer and closer to the two hour mark for all of our episodes. Yeah, no. We could do it. But you probably not enjoy that. Oh, I know. There was a couple of other famous members that, like, I just had to cut. I'm like, we don't have time. Like, let's just let's just do the overview. We may revisit them. But um, I think my favorite thing, or one of the things I found fascinating, was Harry Price, and just how, again, how he was connected to Doyle and then Helen Duncan and all these people. And I'm like, and he's considered like one of the first ghost hunters and one of the most famous ghost hunters um, in England. And I know if you live over there, you're, you've probably heard of him and know of him. I personally, other than the work with Doyle, the research I did for Doyle, I didn't know about Harry Price until all of this. So I'm like, I'm fat. I, I can't wait to dive into his story more when we do the Borley Rectory and kind of look into him a little bit deeper. For sure. I think I heard Harry Price's name, but I want to say it was because M covered it in an episode of And That's Why We Drink. Okay. And they got into the fact that you can become, you can still become a member of like the Society for Psychical Research uh-huh. and possibly the Ghost Club. I can't remember, but it came up and they were a member of one or both of them. And like, so I knew the name Harry Price, but if uh-huh. you'd asked me who he was, I'd be like, um, person in history. Yeah, no, I would have been, oh, I would have even known. I've been like, I'm not sure. And I think there's like even a mini series about him. Because when I searched him, it was like Harry Price mini series. And I'm like, wait, what? what? Oh, yeah. So um, I, I know we're going to cover him in season three in depth. And I'm like, I'm going to have to watch that mini series before yes. we do this. So, yeah, it. but the Ghost Club was really interesting. Um Especially comparing it to the Society of Psychical Research and kind of how they both worked. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting to see how they worked off of each other and like kind of mm-hmm. butted heads a little bit, but then like also worked off each other really well. And just how the Ghost Club changed over the course of its history. Yes. That's kind of trippy. Well, it is to go from skeptic to full on believers. We really don't question anything back to skeptical again yeah and to the point where now they have actual whole on investigations but they don't do it for publicity or for entertainment Mm -hmm. i do like that caveat that's really Mm -hmm. cool i agree a hundred percent there we go so this was fun i'm glad we got to talk about it and i can't wait for our next podcast to dive into helen duncan 
yes. and what happened. Because the book I was listening to started talking about it, and I'm like, oh, I can't talk about it. We've got to wait till next week. <laughs> hey, at least we'll you weren't trying to cover Harry Price before we covered Helen Duncan. Oh my gosh, seriously. Yes. Yes. So um I'm really I'm really fascinated. And I had to stop myself from researching the Borley Rectory because I wanted to so bad and I'm like, focus, Jessica. No, that one's gotta you be cannot... a haunted location episode. It has to be. It, it had to be. Because I was like, I'll include it. I'm like, there's no way. There's no way. It's too much of its own. So um but yeah, I wanted to do a deep dive into that and I couldn't, but I will. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, very good. Yes, that was absolutely amazing. And we're so glad that y'all were here for the journey with us. Um, We know that you have your choice of podcasts. Thank you for (laughs) listening to ours. (laughs) And if you do, we hope you enjoy the episode. And if you do, um, you know the deal. Like and review, share with your friends, wherever you're listening to us, hit subscribe so that you know when we release new episodes. Absolutely. And we want to hear from you. So let us know what you think about this episode. And if there are any other topics you want us to explore in future episodes, you can always find us on Instagram or Facebook at Calling All Spirits Pod, or you can email us at Calling All Spirits Pod at gmail.com. And if you're feeling lucky, you can always, you know, hit up one of the haunted locations in England where the ghost club might be investigating Ooh. and uh, name drop us. And maybe. <laughs> Get us on the air. Who knows? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Can we come speak to the ghost club? Okay, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. Okay. So if any of you have the hookup with the ghost club, please hook us up so that we can come visit and we can work with y'all. Yes, please. And until then, thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.